So uh, last week, Kevin kind of started us off with a look at the seven deadly sins. He gave us a bit of an introduction, a little history to the uh, seven deadly sins, the seven vices, and their corresponding virtues. We looked a little bit at the Beatitudes and how those speak kind of against these vices. And um, this morning, we're going to look at one in particular. Before we do that, let me just remind you of the seven deadly sins as they're known, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, or anger, envy, and pride. Frederick Buechner says this, Greed, gluttony, lust, envy, and pride are no more than sad efforts to fill the empty place where love belongs. And anger and sloth are just two things that may happen when you find that not even all seven of them at their deadliest ever can. Part of the tension in looking at a list like this is that we try to fill the empty place where love belongs. We try to fill in our lives and those spaces in us that are longing for love and attention and desire and satisfaction and fulfillment. We try to find them in so many things. And one of the ones that we try to find it in is lust. We're going to look at lust this morning. Um, What's interesting to me, it might not be interesting to you, but the original church fathers, as they were putting together this list of uh, vices, considered lust the least of the vices, the lowest of all, the most base vice and least significant. Uh, Aquinas even considered lust and no injury sin, is the words he used, meaning that it impacts no one but yourself. Now, while we know that that's not entirely true, and we know that lust does, or the effects of lust do impact other people outside of ourselves, it is true that lust has been considered and may still be considered one of the least of the vices. And yet, if we had to be honest, we would also probably say at the same time, lust seems to have one of the greatest impacts on our society, on our marriages, on our relationships, on our friendships. Um, let me just ask you a quick question. What are the first words that come to your mind when you think of the word lust? Just shout them out. Pornography. What else? Love. Sex. What else? Adultery. Greed. Objectification. Addiction. Say that again? Yeah, being jealous. Yeah, absolutely. Say that again? Comparing. Okay, compare and contrast. So you have all these words that kind of come to the surface, and I'm persuaded that anytime you ever ask that question in any group, wherever, doesn't matter if it's a bunch of junior hires all the way through uh, parents, grandparents, it, the number one thing that always comes up is pornography. Porn. That it just, it's like almost synonymous with lust. It's where we take a beautiful and sacred and amazing thing called sex and we begin to twist and distort it in ways that ruin the beauty of it. I mean, sex is intended to be this beautiful joining of heart and mind and soul and emotion and body, and we strip it down and distort it to just be a physical action, something we do. 
And I think it would not be hard to convince all of us that we have a problem with pornification. I don't know if you've heard that term, pornification. I, I think we tend to pornify, I don't even know if that's a word, pornify everything. Okay, pornification is really to be understood as using sex and sexual allure to advertise or promote. You know, to somehow draw attention to something. We tend to sell cars not by the quality of the car and the size of its engine, but by the model standing next to it, um, like describing it or demonstrating how the doors open or something. I, it, we, we use sex to try to sell. We take Carl Jr.'s hamburgers, take the most mundane of all tasks, eating a burger, and we turn it into a thing where a model's dripping sauce all down the front of her and shoving as much of a hamburger in her mouth as possible. We sell website domains at GoDaddy not based on the quality of the domain name or the service they offer, which is like nothing other than here's your domain name. <laughs> and, and, and we do that with allure, with sex, with attractiveness, with a desire to persuade. We have a serious problem with the pornification of everything. I would go even further to say that pornification can maybe be described as taking the simple and making it extreme. That's what porn does, right? It takes the simple and it causes us to become less satisfied with the normal and the ordinary and to escalate things till we desire the extreme. And then those extreme measures make us need more and more of the extreme to find the same stimulation, right? To, to get to the place where you say, man, I'm feeling something, and it just keeps escalating. And we, like I said, tend to pornify everything. Now, don't just think of it in terms of sex and lust, but lust goes far beyond that. It goes into other things that we take and make from simple to extreme. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, growing up, how many of you did a slip and slide growing up? Yeah. I mean, here's what my slip and slide looked like. A tarp, some water. There you go. Right? That was it. Maybe a little soap to make it a little sleeker, a little quicker before you like grind your face on the grass or whatever's on the other side of your slip and slide, right? But now people slip and slide like downhills off canyons in 40-foot drops into water. That's, you don't just slip and slide anymore, you slip and slide, you know what I mean? We take the simple and we make it extreme. We don't just jump out of planes anymore. We jump off buildings we jump off mountains, we jump out of planes with wings on and see how long we can fly before pulling the chute. We jump out of space and free fall as far as possible. We jump now from planes without chutes. I mean, if you've seen those videos, they jump out of a plane and then they hope their buddy catches them and clicks a little thing under their belt before he or she pulls the strap. Recently, one man jumped from a plane, I think at 5,000 feet in the air, no partners, no pack, nothing. Only a net at the bottom that he hoped he'd hit. He did, by the way. He made it. You just can't jump out of planes anymore. It has to be more extreme. 
We, we do this with yoga. Yeah, there's normal yoga. Then we're like, yeah, you know, it's yoga. So we want power yoga. But then it needs to be hot power yoga. Right? Like, just sweating your face off while you do yoga. Then it's hot yoga on the beach. Then hot yoga on the beach on a paddleboard. And then now yoga, power yoga on a paddleboard going down a river. Right? I mean, it just keeps going. Soon it'll be down the rapids or off a waterfall and then keep your pose the whole way. I don't, I don't know. But we just keep escalating. We do it with coffee. I know some of you, this is a sensitive subject, so I'll like <laughs> proceed with caution. But we do this with coffee. My parents grew up. Folgers, that's all you needed. Just a little something to put in your cup, a little hot water. Voila, it wakes you up in the morning. That's all you need. Now we have a much more and ever-expanding palette. We go from dark to light. We have mixed blends. We have single origin. We are concerned what region of the world it comes from. It's not now enough to just drink the coffee. It has to have art with it. We take pictures of what our drink looks like before we drink it. You see what I'm saying? Then it's like, uh, what about the process? I mean, you don't just push the button and brew it, do you? I mean, that's crazy. What about pour-overs and Chemex and Aeropress and French press and French pressing while doing yoga? I don't, I mean, we just keep adding to this, right? Yeah, and some of you, I'm sure, have heard of uh, Kopi Luwak coffee. How many of you have heard of that kind of coffee? Right. So this is the most expensive coffee in the world. This is about $100 a cup of coffee. Yeah, for 8 ounces to 12 ounces of Kopi Luwak coffee, you're ranging from $60 to $100. Here's the crazy thing. And the reason it's so expensive is it doesn't come in mass quantities. It doesn't because it comes from a region of Indonesia. In Indonesia, there's a certain cat-like animal that likes coffee. It eats the bean whole. It swallows it whole. And then it digests said bean. It excretes said bean. Then that feces is harvested. It is cleaned, washed off. The bean comes out and then is taken to the roasting process, which then is brought to your mouth. <laughs> I, I don't know whoever did the experimentation on this. I don't know if they started off going, I wonder if this would make a nice tea before like moving into coffee. I don't get it, but you see what I'm saying. We are driven by the need to take the basic and the simple and search for more and better ways to stimulate and satisfy. There's something about human nature that gets desensitized to the ordinary. And that is lust. That is lust. That is the pornification of everything. And the more I wrestled with the topic this morning, the more I realized that the talk I wanted to give was on the ways in which we're not satisfied with our ordinary lives and are always lusting for more and more extreme versions of reality. That was the talk I wanted to give. But at the same time, the more I read and prayed, the more I felt like there was a talk I had to give. 
Not the talk I wanted to give, but rather the talk I had to give. I feel like to talk about the pornification of everything might fail to bring up the very significant thing that we have cleaning in our own house and in our own lives to take care of. That lust has been a vice that has taken root in this community and has taken root in churches all throughout our country in ways that have been and are so destructive. Over the last 10 years that I've been here, our community has seen a plethora of examples of how lust has absolutely dealt a destructive blow to people, to lives, to families, to kids, to relationships, to the church. And so while I wanted to talk, and I kept thinking all week about the pornification of everything, I kept feeling like what we have to do is go back and look at the words of Jesus and Matthew that speak to this idea of lust. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. It'll also be on the screen. It says this, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus starts off and he says something about the importance of covenant. He says, right away, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. What Jesus is doing here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is he's going after and describing the Pharisees And he's communicating to them and to the religious leaders that it's not just about the law. That there's a spirit of the law that goes far beyond the said, specific, stated law. And so Jesus alludes to the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't just stick with the Sixth Commandment, don't commit adultery. He moves to the Tenth as well and includes it by saying simply, don't covet. Don't don't let that be a part of what you're doing either. What Jesus is doing is he's reaffirming the importance of covenant. Jesus is reminding us that sex is designed to be take place within the covenant of marriage. That what Jesus is restating to everyone is the importance of fidelity in the Old Testament, that that carries on into the New Testament, and that this isn't just an issue of infidelity, this is also an issue of lust. C.S. Lewis described it this way. He said, Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian vices. There's no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. We affirm that truth. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that, that it's either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or total abstinence. See, sex is designed to be expressed within marriage. And when it's within marriage, it finds its greatest fulfillment, its greatest freedom, and its most intimacy. Jesus then goes on to say this, that lust is the issue. So he starts off by describing covenant and then moves us to the place of lust being the issue where he says, But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Everyone who looks, 
The word look here does not simply mean glance. It does not mean an incidental sight. It's not happen. It's not what happens when you kind of look across the room. You see somebody who's attractive, and you go, wow, he or she is attractive. I find them attractive. That's not what he's talking about. The word Jesus uses here indicates that the person sees and then continues to look. It's a present participle where what it means is that it keeps going and going and going. It's an intentional, repeated gazing. And he says, if you, anyone who looks with lustful intent, the Greek phrase lustful intent literally reads, for the purpose of lusting for her. In other words, looking at a male or a female to be sexually aroused is what this is getting at. Dallas Willard defined it this way, using his or her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. What it's doing is feeding a desire. It's lusting, it's fantasizing about touching and caressing and entering a body. It's of taking the mental and wanting so badly to make it physical. Now, what I don't want us to be misconfused when we talk about this is the Bible is all about sexual desire. It doesn't take long to read it to recognize that God is for sexual desire. He created us with sexual desire, and He intends for us to use that sexual desire in ways that are appropriate. God has no problem with that. In fact, I was reading through part of the Song of Solomon this week and felt like I needed to take a shower afterwards, right? I mean... It is, it is a lusty book. Uh, don't, don't read it just as like, oh, I think they're describing the way we love God. No, it's, it's describing sexual relationship. It's describing intrigue and desire and passion and a whole bunch of other things. Just read it. Jesus is talking about something more than just the desire, what he's talking about here. And he could have used any... Greek word, or in this case, Matthew could have used any Greek word to describe what Jesus was saying, but he used a Greek word, a specific word to describe lust, and it's the word where we would get our understanding of idolatry. It's also used many times with the word greed. Essentially, what he's saying is that lust is idolatrous or is greedy, It means that it's something that is selfish. It is something that is desired. It's incredibly, incredibly self-focused. It's all about me. It's what lust is. It's trying to figure out how to feed me and my desires. That's why people say things like, it is better to have love and lust than let our apparatus rust. It's this desire. It's this passion It's saying, like, I I want to act on it only for me, right? Only for my own desires. In all my years of walking alongside of other people who have told me, shared with me different stories, there's never been a person that has come to me and said that they hooked up, called for a prostitute, had an affair, looked at porn, or any of those other things, and said they did so for the benefit of another person. Never. Never. It's always like, yes, I did, and it was all about me. 
It's all about what I wanted, all about my satisfaction. And as you know, with addiction, it only becomes something that never is satisfied. See, when we misuse something, eventually we lose our ability to appreciate its true goodness. We lose our ability to understand how sacred and how holy and how beautiful it is. Lewis goes on to say that the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, a sexual union, from all the other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. See, what Lewis is getting at is that sex is not just physical, it is also spiritual and emotional. And sex is not in any way intended to be selfish. Rather, it's intended to be giving of yourself to another. Tim Keller defines it as like radical self-donation, a giving of myself completely to another. It's the giving of my entire person, not just my body parts or my fluids, but my whole soul and life to another. Which takes us to the third and kind of final point. Jesus says this. It takes extreme measures. It says, If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So what is Jesus getting at? Why is he saying, Hey, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, cut it off your hand causes you to sin like why is he expressing these things and i think what he's saying is take extreme measures deal with it radically he's not advocating for literally physically cutting off or self-mutilating or maiming he is simply saying take extreme measures do whatever it takes to root lust out of your life, hate it, crush it, dig it out, do whatever it takes. Paul in another passage says this, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. See those words come up again, right? That the idol of sexuality and lust will destroy you. But it can. As I started thinking about, because our goal is always to find space to say we must apply what it is we're hearing. And if God's word is calling us to something, it should have action with it, right? And um, I started thinking, what are all the ways that we could apply this? And certainly there are many. Don't awaken love. Guard your heart and your mind. Don't put yourself in compromising situations. I mean, the list could go on and on. And we've probably all heard those things again and again. The one that I kept coming back to over and over was this. Radical self-disclosure. But if you want to deal with the subject of lust in your life, it requires radical self-disclosure. You want to tear it out? You want to rip it from where it is a foothold, where it's tangling up in your life? There has to be in my opinion, radical self-disclosure. See, lust thrives in privacy and isolation. Lust continues to grow in the darkness where it's hidden. 
You feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel shame. You feel like, man, I'm the only one that is struggling with this. All of that leads to us feeling defeated, feeling vulnerable, feeling weak, feeling alone. Henry Nouwen says, there is a deep resistance to making ourselves so vulnerable, so naked, so totally unprotected. We indeed want to love God and worship God, but we also want to keep a little corner of our inner life for ourselves where we can hide and think our own secret thoughts, dream our own dreams, and play with our own mental fabrications. We are always tempted to select carefully the thoughts that we bring into our conversations with God. What makes us so stingy? Stingy, sorry. Maybe we wonder if God can take all that goes on in our minds and hearts. Can God accept our hateful thoughts, our cruel fantasies, and our shameful dreams? Can God handle our primitive images, our inflated illusions, our exotic mental castles? Or do we want to hold on to our own pleasurable imaginings and stimulating revelries, afraid that in showing them to our Lord, we may have to give them up? What we need is to speak the truth, and the truth will set you free. Years ago... I, uh, it was this, I remember it was like the same week, two young men in our community, uh, students in college, uh, both came to me on separate occasions and just simply, it was one of, I mean, there's been hundreds of these conversations, right, which are, hey, I'm struggling with porn, I feel like I'm the only one, I feel like I can't get a handle on it, I don't know what to do, and I'm coming just to say, can you help, do you have advice, it was two, two men, and I uh, sat with the first one and said, what do you think? We talked through it. What are some steps you could take? And uh, at the end, um, he said, well, I do know this. The only thing I don't want you to say to me in terms of advice is just read my Bible more and pray. And I was like, well, you're probably going to hear that from me at some point, that those might be really good things to do, that if we pursue who Christ is, right, in the midst of doing that, we're filling the void that you're trying to fill with porn, And so at the same time, that can be really helpful for us. But let's be more practical and give you a simple way to do it. How about radical self-disclosure? Let me think about that. Okay. Do you think that's something you could do? Come back to me in a week. Never came back. Saw him two, maybe three more times. Never saw him again. Right? At another student, the exact same time, the same week, came to me. And uh, we talked through almost the exact same scenario, exact same situation. And I said to the student, "Um, what do you think you should do? And he's like, I don't know. I said, what about radical self-disclosure? He said, I like that idea. I said, okay, well, what do you think that could look like? And he said, how about getting an internet filter? And I said, my advice would be we don't need internet filters. While they're good, what we need are friends, right? So the best piece of advice isn't just an internet filter, it's friends that go along with it. So there are internet filters that what they do is they collect the information and then pass it on to the person that you've selected as an accountability partner. Who would you select? And at first he was like, I'll select my accountability partner. And I was like, great, does he struggle with porn? Yes. I'm like, great. Now what you're doing is just exchanging new porn sites to share with one another at that point. That's all that's amounting to. Any other, any other options? And he looks at me and he said, I really want this to be done. 
So I think it requires a big step. It's like, no, you're talking. I like this. He said, I think I'm going to put my mom on there. And I was like, okay, yeah. Now we're getting down to some serious disclosure. That's good. Okay, anyone else? I wasn't trying to talk him off the cliff, but I was like, let's... Let's rein that back maybe a little. And he said, uh, actually, this girl that I've been dating, I expressed it to her a couple weeks ago that I have an issue, and we're moving more and more toward the possibility that we'll get engaged. And I know that if she ever saw that I looked at her site, it would absolutely destroy her and maybe cause her to think about ever marrying me again. And so I'm going to put her name on the list too. That same man has been a faithful, dedicated member of this community for years now and has that same girlfriend is now his wife and he has kids and he has lived in holiness and purity because he was willing to say, I'm going to be radical with my disclosure. I'm not going to hide it or bring it to the light. I'm going to say, this is something that needs to be changed. I mean, James chapter 1 says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed right? I will tell you this. There has not been a community that I have ever been a part of that is more open, that is more welcoming, that is more vulnerable, that's more willing to say, this is where I'm at. And when we do, we're always embraced with grace and forgiveness. Always. My encouragement to us this week, when we lean into this virtue of chastity, when we step away from being people who are longing to lust, may we be the kind of people that open our lives to one another in such a way that the light of Christ comes in. It's not our ability to overcome. It's our ability to link arms and say, it's only through Christ and through the power of him and others that I can accomplish anything. And so link arms this week. There are, I know, because you've shared with me deep things going on in this community. Share it with someone who will walk closely with you. Don't, don't continue to go alone. Don't, right now, you're, some of you are going, well, I, I, I don't want to do it. I'm like coming up with reasons or excuses why there's a better way. Or maybe I'll just put the internet filter on. Or maybe I'll... Don't. Cut it out. Dig it out gouge it out and do so by being radically self-disclosing. Let's pray.